0: Hi Venters and welcome to another episode of Mind on the Game, a Vent sports podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with men and women from across the sporting landscape. We discuss their sporting journeys, their mental health and how they keep their mind on the game. For the first time ever, I am welcoming back a former Just Checking In Pod guest onto this pod for a very specific reason, and that is because friend of the pod and intellectual Will Costello also happens to be a very handy Gaelic football player. The Irish sport is a combination of rugby, football, handball, basketball, and a bit of hockey as well, and is a complete outlier in its uniqueness. It's predominantly played in Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland, and the only sport that comes close to being as unique is Aussie rules football. Despite the game being completely amateur and very much not a mainstream sport, mirroring the way the Irish people have spread their influence across the globe, so too has Gaelic football, with semi-famous teams in Australia, Dubai and even America. In this shorter Mind on the Game episode, we discuss Will's special relationship with the sport, how it's given him joy and distraction, a nostalgic link to his home when playing it in the UK, its rich history, and how it can provide a coping mechanism for many people struggling with addiction, even alcohol. This is how our check-in went. Will, welcome back to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Your first pod was so well-received that when you messaged me about your love of Gaelic footy, after I launched mine of the Game, I made it my mission to get you back on. So you are the first ever guest to return, so I hope you feel a bit flattered about that. And I guess it's also good just to catch up, mate, and talk about how the pod was received, your end, and how you're getting on right now. So how was the pod received? You know, did you get any good feedback to it? Did any other opportunities come about? And how are your PhD studies going?
1: Yeah, so uh, the pod was very well received and I'm delighted to be the first returning guest and to talk about Gaelic football, which I'm really passionate about. Yeah, the pod led to good opportunities for me. My my master's is going very well there in the background. It's just all online now, which is a little bit annoying. I was kind of looking forward to getting down to London to being in university in person. But it's going very well. I'm considering PhD options for next year and have a few good opportunities to consider, so that's good. In terms of the opportunities that the pod kind of led to, it's all kind of been snowballing and my writing is going pretty well too. I had pieces published in Ario magazine and Quillette magazine online, which were two publication goals of mine. And my Ario piece discussed Gaelic football heavily. It was all about how sport can be a vehicle to transcend racism through the formation of new tribes. So we may get to talk about that today. Yeah. So it's all going from
0: positive to positive. Excellent, mate. We've got so much to get on with on this pod. It's going to be a shorter episode because we've already talked about your journey and a bit of mental health chat. So it's just going to be a pure, no frills, mind on the game episode. So shall we just crack on with the show, mate? Like I said, there's only one topic on this show. So let's dive straight into it, mate, and your love of Gaelic footy. So it's quite a niche sport, I would say, even within the niche sport genre or culture, shall we say. Can you just maybe lay out a bit what it is for the listeners maybe the rules and the cultural values and then how your love for the game started and how you grew your love as well
1: absolutely so gaelic football and hurling the native irish gaelic games are a hugely central part of irish identity and folklore for thousands of years there's irish mythology about hurling which is really interesting going back thousands of years which is very interesting for a culture In terms of the sport itself, Gaelic football is my sport rather than hurling, so not the one with the sticks. So Gaelic football is basically 15 players on each team. The rules are essentially a mix between rugby, soccer and basketball. So you carry the ball in your hands for four steps before you need to bounce the ball, perform a solo, which means kicking the ball back up into your hands, or you need to pass or shoot the ball. You can't throw the ball like rugby, you can only pass it by... Punching it out of your hands kind of like volleyball style or kicking it out of your hands like a goalkeeper kick out in soccer In terms of the scoring the posts are like rugby posts So kicking between the posts over the crossbar is one point so you can score kind of from distance And in the net like a regular goal is worth three points So you kind of have a choice of which kind of attack to go for in terms of the tackling It's kind of similar to basketball, except a lot rougher. You can hit someone as hard as you want, shoulder to shoulder, but you can't grab them round the waist or grab them and pull them to the ground like rugby. In terms of the pitch, I think it's maybe twice as big as a soccer pitch, maybe a little bit less, but certainly much bigger than a rugby pitch and a soccer pitch. So, crazy game.
0: Yeah, it definitely sounds like a crazy game. There's so many intricacies and layers and skills to it that I didn't even know about, to be honest, mate. So that's really educational and um, informative for the listeners. When you do play Gaelic football, what impact does it have on your mental health? Is it a positive distraction? Was it a kind of confidence boost or an outlet to vent some anger in your teens, maybe? What can you tell me here?
1: Well, certainly I think all sport and exercise has great impact on your mental health. You'll understand that the minute you cross that white line, all the other problems in your life go away for that duration of the game or whatever it is obviously it comes with its own challenges too but generally if you're concentrating on the next ball you're not really worrying about what's going on in your life. The hardest part is kind of dragging yourself to the game or to the training. Once you go there, no, no one ever regrets having trained. You kind of regret missing training or something like that. It's, it's hard to get yourself to train, but no one regrets having done it. Gaelic football and sport was a huge part of my life as a, a kid and a teenager and probably kept me a little bit on the straight and narrow. School teachers would be able to use it to motivate me to try and not get in trouble at school. Uh, even though I still sometimes did. I suppose it probably kept me out of trouble outside of school too because your evenings would be filled up training or playing games and then you'd be too tired to go cause any trouble anyway. So it's a great outlet for any, any young person, I think.
0: You really know your Gaelic football history, pal inside out pretty much so why don't you tell the listeners about its historical significance and, and perhaps how it's been at times maybe a symbol of irish rebellion against the british when we've not acted the right way as an understatement of the year
1: yeah that's certainly a key fact historically so the native games are a big expression of irish identity and it's remarkable to consider how far we've come in anglo-irish relations because Only a hundred years ago, British tanks actually drove into Gaelic football headquarters in Dublin, Crow Park, and opened fire on players and fans alike in what is known as Bloody Sunday. They actually killed one player called uh, Michael Hogan. And the stand in Crow Park, one of the stands in the stadium, is built from the rubble of that Bloody Sunday. And it's called Hill 16. So that's amazing in itself. It's only 102 years since what's known as Gaelic Sunday when in 1918 Irish clubs stood up against the British Empire and triumphed in a peaceful protest against the requirement that the native games could only take place with an official permit. It was banned to play your native games outside of that. So on Gaelic Sunday approximately 1500 hurling and football matches were scheduled to start simultaneously throughout the country at 3pm. So like a mass protest of sport over 50,000 players were expected to participate and many more turned out as spectators. So, you know, Gaelic Games has always been emblematic of tension between Britain and Ireland and we've moved a long way since then. So even during the troubles in the north, in Northern Ireland, there's stories of british soldiers stopping irish players on their way to training and throwing their gear bag over a bridge into a river or confiscating it and even in modern times there's debate in queen's university in the north about whether they should ban students from wearing gaelic football jerseys because it's seen as quite provocative which is you know, that's an amazing thing to consider banning such an expression of core irish identity
0: Before we talk about the kinds of affinities that exist within Gaelic football culture, especially amongst the players, I just want to go back to the skill set you talked about. Because as you said, Gaelic football is a mix of football, rugby, maybe a bit of hockey, maybe a bit of basketball. you obviously having to juggle a lot of skills in your head in in regards to a physical aspect. But did having to develop those skills almost help you from an academic perspective as well in your studies?
1: I never really thought about it that way Uh, you know everybody hears about the rules of gaelic football or the gaelic games and think oh my god there's so much to think about i would kind of say it's kind of similar to when you're learning to drive a car learning to change the gears at the time when you're starting to learn you're totally conscious of the gears and you're thinking oh i'm always going to have to think about that but then after a while it becomes unconscious competency. So you're not really aware of how much you know it, you just know it and you're able to execute it without even thinking. So I've never really thought about the way the actual study element of learning it kind of when you learn it from a young age, it kind of comes as natural. But you do tend to find that a lot of top level Gaelic footballers are also top level students as well. So that's just maybe something about the most extremely successful people are successful in many domains, not just one.
0: I think when it comes to Gaelic football, there are certainly some similarities to, say, the state of origin in Australian Rugby League, but maybe on a more permanent basis, whereas in state of origin, you get this one-off series where all the players from different clubs play for their region against each other. Whereas in Gaelic football, there's a real sense of affinity with your team and sticking with it for the top players. Why is that?
1: Well, that's right, because basically the whole sport is actually amateur status, even though players train like professionals. There was an Arsenal player maybe 10 years ago that actually came over and did a TV programme, a kind of player swap where one of the Gaelic footballers went and trained with Arsenal, and the Arsenal player trained with the Gaelic football team. And he said they trained just as hard as Professionals. Uh, I can't think of his name. I'll send it to you after the pod and you can update it. That was a really interesting kind of cultural swap to see. It was a good program. And I think Sam Allardyce actually came over and did a bit of coaching too. So they're, they're fun programs to watch. But basically, Gaelic football and hurling, they're all amateur sports, which means that the players, even at the top level back home, don't get paid. And so the players that are playing in front of 80,000 people in Crow Park on a Sunday could be teaching your kids in school the following week or delivering your post or whatever it might be. So almost all the players play for their home county. Transfers are almost unheard of and there's a real sense of community and legacy associated with your county. So some players, their fathers and their grandfathers have played for their county, so there's a real lore associated with your your team.
0: Can you talk me through your first ever game for whichever team you started at back in Ireland or in England when it comes to Gaelic football? What was that like? And walk me through the mental process behind it. Was there any nerves or anxiety before it? How was the performance and how did you feel after you'd finished it?
1: Hmm. Uh, I mean I've been playing since under 10 players start really young back home so I I don't really remember there being any great sense of occasion about about that first game I think I remember I didn't like it at first but my parents knowing what a gift the sport would be for me eventually made me persevere thank god there's a lesson there for parents who may be tempted to kind of maybe go with a child-centered view of parenting but most of the time parents actually know what's best for their kids so stick with that our club at home milltown is very very small so every year my father and i would have to start the season driving around the town trying to recruit every young lad who was kind of of age uh, convincing them to play so that we'd have enough players and even up until under 14 I'd be trying to convince some of the girls, some of the better girls on the girls team to play with us as well. So we'd have enough players. So it was always a bit stressful on that front. I did feel a little bit nervous starting secondary school because our primary school is very, very small compared to the secondary school I went to. The secondary school I went to was called St. Jarlath's. And it was a very famous footballing school. We've won the most All-Ireland Colleges competitions in Ireland ever. And people would come from all over Ireland to go to boarding school in St. Charlotte's just to play football. And it was called a footballing nursery or the football factory because it produced so many top class players. And the year I started secondary school, my brother had just won And under 18, a senior colleges all Ireland with uh, our school. So there was fierce excitement for me going in and coming from a small town, playing in the lower divisions of Gaelic football to suddenly be competing with the top level guys my age. Luckily, I got on pretty well in underage and our team was brilliant and we won almost every competition we played in just a special kind of group of guys. Just to give you an idea of kind of the scale we're talking about there, when I say a small primary school and a big secondary school, my primary school had 40 students in the whole school and only two teachers. There was nine students in my entire year group and that was the biggest year group to ever go through the school at the time. So the secondary school that I moved up to had 500 students. So that was a huge culture shock for me.
0: And what are some of your favourite? stories or best games that mean a lot to you or your mental health, Will, either from your playing days in Ireland at Newman University or your present club, St. Brendan's? Okay,
1: so some of the best memories I have actually uh, unusually come from playing for Newman University when I moved to England over to Birmingham. On one occasion, we secured a a shock last-second draw against Birmingham Uni. with a last-second goal at a tournament in Cardiff. So if you consider that Newman University only has 3,000 students in the whole school, to galvanize a team to challenge a huge red brick uni like Birmingham was pretty cool. I play for St. Brendan's now with a few lads that played for Birmingham uni then. So it's great to still have memories of that rivalry. But my best memories from sport are actually from coaching an under 18 team back home in Milltown in Galway in Ireland. I was 21 years old at the time, and there was talk in the town that this generation, this under 18 team, weren't going to be entered into competition because. The club was struggling to find a coach for them. And they were also worried that this particular generation were going to be a gang of troublemakers and that would make the club look bad. I thought that was terrible that a group, a generation of young lads might miss out on an important season in their life and an important season in their development. So I decided to coach the team with another teammate of mine, Brendan McGrath. It was definitely a baptism of fire. It, It was tough because I wasn't much older than the under 18 players themselves. So that that was tough in itself. And I tried to maybe bring a bit of a professionalism to the group. We would do things like we'd video and watch all our own games together, which was unheard of compared to other teams in the club, even the older senior teams. we travelled travel to opposition games to kind of scout the opposition and see how they'd play. And the lads kind of loved this, you know, out of two years together in our first year, we lost the final the league final after a replay and in the second year we won the league competition which was a great way to put a exclamation mark on our time together it was very difficult at times the lads were troublesome so there was one occasion where they stole jerseys from an opposing team's dressing room and in previous years the coaches maybe would have laughed this off or ignored it and The lads would be able to get away with it, but I made it a point of principle to make sure every jersey was returned to the club, which was a little bit embarrassing, but I think a better learning opportunity for everyone. I still meet lads from that team out on maybe a drunken night out and St. Stephen's night back home after Christmas, and they'll tell me it was the best season they ever enjoyed and that they never enjoyed their football as much as that year. And there's even some lads who credit that season with keeping them out of trouble, that they were going out of a, going down a seriously dangerous path and giving themselves a focus with that team helped help them. That's the most important thing for me from the sport.
0: We've jousted a lot, Will, on previous pods and in DMs about toxic masculinity and trying to nip it in the bud very, very early on. And it seems like you did that. How proud are you that you were able to take these kids who may have gone down a darker path or nip some problematic behaviours in the bud and maybe given them memories for life.
1: Yeah, that was uh, hugely important because, you know, sport, you, you, you maybe forget the, the medals and the competitions and the victories and all that, but you'll never really forget how you felt for that season or how it impacted and changed your life. So I really believe that sport can be character developing and a way to kind of Reorient your life. So that was brilliant to be able to see that come to fruition. And good mentors and kind of good role models are maybe important, and that's what I was trying to do. I probably grew up a lot myself learning how to be organized and disciplined, looking after the team. It, it made me more responsible.
0: Back to you as a player now, Will. I always ask every guest about any bad moments they've gone through or a bad match they've gone through. And so we can normalize making mistakes for our listeners, what they learned from it as well. If you could, tell me about one story you can share and perhaps what you learned from that experience.
1: Mm, Okay, so I did get sent off one time when under 14, two yellow cards, not a straight red. And I just remember hating the feeling of having let my teammates down and feeling powerless to kind of help on the sideline that you think, oh, I'm redundant now. I can't really do anything. Looking at my parents, looking at me and it was very stressful. I never got sent off again. Thank God. And the other lesson I suppose I would try and give to people would be to not take for granted how much time you have. I've maybe been guilty of thinking I've loads of time left in my career and not taking the game as seriously as I should. And now suddenly I find myself age 31 thinking, oh, I might not have as many years left as I once thought. So that happens very quick. So make sure you make the most of your early playing days. It it doesn't last forever. Sporting career is quite short.
0: And on the match day experience itself, Will, I always ask every guest this question who comes on Mind of the Game. So before, during or even after a game, what mental tools or techniques do you use to keep your mind on the game?
1: one thing i I think is important is be prepared the night before don't have your gear ready at the door the night before don't be wasting your time the next morning trying to find your boots or find your gear that'll only add stress to you during the game i suppose don't get involved with any aggro fights with the opposing team or your own team if you can don't get on your teammates back because if they make a mistake They're the first person who knows it and they don't need you reminding them. I also don't advocate getting involved in any scraps on the field or fights on the field because it's pointless, really. You're not going to have a fight there on the field, so it's a, a redundant place to act like a hard man. I don't really buy into this whole idea that, oh, what happens on the pitch stays on the pitch. I think you represent yourself, your family, your town, your club, your county, everything. You represent that on the pitch and off the pitch. So I I don't buy into that argument at all. So you're the same person. You shouldn't behave differently during sport as outside
0: of it. I also talk a lot on the pod, mate, about the darker side of every sport, which normally includes exclusionary culture and the dreaded TFC. Now, you messaged me before the pod actually saying, what is the TFC? So I explain it for listeners. So a TFC is a thanks for coming. Now, it's usually used a lot in cricket where I heard the term and (laughs) experienced a few myself. So basically in cricket terms, it means going to a game, fielding all day, but not getting to bowl and then batting, but maybe getting out for a duck or not even getting to bat. So for Gaelic football, it would be maybe being on the subs bench, but never coming off the bench. Did you ever get a TFC and what impact did it have on your mental health?
1: Yeah, I saw that happen to a few other lads on teams when I was growing up and thought it was horrible. And my father would actually stress to me how horrible that was and make sure I noticed that. It never happened to me much because we never had that many players. So if it happened to lads there was maybe only one or two that it happened to, and maybe that's made it worse for them, actually, because they were very singled out. It might have happened to me if I was maybe a younger player kidding out for a, an older group, so it wasn't too bad. I'd have a few years left at that age bracket anyway. But yeah, I made sure, because I, it had been pointed out to me growing up, that it never happened on the teams I coached. You obviously get some parents shouting in at you about their son not starting or things like that. But it is important to give everyone a chance and you can find that balance. It's not all about just grinding out results. It's about the whole the holistic thing of the squad you've got
0: together. Playing the game in England as an expat, mate, how has it helped your mental health and how have the players you played with helped you maybe grow as an individual? As I understand, you were in pretty diverse teams. Is that right?
1: I mean, that helped immensely. I I almost played more Gaelic football in England than I did at home. The Gaelic team at uni at Newman University was like a, a ready-made social group to join and we were a great group. We even won team of the year at the university a few years. It's something that's helped me as well moving over here and being involved with Gaelic Games is seeing how Irish the second generation English lads seem on the teams over here and it made me maybe change my mind about whether or not I could raise kids here in England, which is an interesting kind of development. We had a very diverse team with international students from Japan, Spain, everywhere, playing on our team in university. And there was interesting, I had a Twitter spat with the university's student union Twitter a few years ago after I'd left the university. They put up this thing about their all-female nominations for sports officer that year and how this was a great example of diversity. And I I kind of tweeted back how ironic this is, given that they said they had an all-female nomination crew. And they responded to me saying, coming from the straight white male working in, in education, that's a bit rich. Now, you know me, Fred, I don't take kindly to being judged by immutable characteristics. So I responded with a team of our Gaelic football team from the few years ago as an example of real diversity. And I asked them what my race or sexuality had to do with anything. I also pointed out to them that they don't know anything about my sexuality at all and perhaps shouldn't speculate. So they deleted the tweet and wrote to me a DM apologising. So that was a, I chalked that one up as a, a victory. But yeah, our team at Newman was a great example of genuine diversity and we were a great, a great mix.
0: When you entered that team and you experienced those people from different cultures and different backgrounds, did it, Not that I'm assuming that you were, but did it challenge maybe any assumptions you had in your head about what those backgrounds were or what cultures there were and maybe educate yourself in some ways?
1: Yeah, it was very interesting. I'd never been on a team that mixed before. There was one conversation I had with one of the Indian, uh, English Indian lads on the team, his name was Aman. You know, he was very kind of laddish during his time at university and loved to drink, loved to party. And I remember speaking to him about his plans for the future, and he said, well, you know, mate, after all this, I'll kind of be relieved that maybe my parents will maybe have an arranged marriage planned for me, and I won't have to to worry about that. You know, it kind of struck me as stark that he would actually be able to frame that as a positive way, whereas I would have probably framed that as I have no control, whereas he thought it was a kind of a relief that that challenge of having to find someone to build a life with would be outsourced to his family so that was, that was interesting you know but it was generally when we were on the team we were focused on the team things and what we had together rather than our differences
0: are there any other tangible benefits that Gaelic football provides to yourself or people back home will you told me off air fair that it can provide a source of distraction or even a coping mechanism for those maybe living with alcohol addiction is that right you know tell me more about this and any evidence behind that if you could Everyone
1: knows the stereotype of Irish struggles with alcoholism and the big part that alcohol plays in the culture in Ireland. So sport is like a two-way street on that count because it probably gives a, a lot of young lads a focus that they otherwise would drink all the time. But when they're playing sport, they wouldn't be drinking at all. They'd be really focused and training to like a professional standard. Ireland is the only country in the EU where young women have worse mental health than men. And I believe that perhaps the outlet of sport might be at play there because every young lad has a focus ready made for them there and a sense of meaning. However, the flip side to that is that players tend to binge drink off season and perhaps don't develop the most healthy relationship towards alcohol moderation. But all things considered, it probably keeps young men off the drink more than it puts them on it.
0: Just building on that dark side of the conversation, mate, dressing room culture is definitely a big part of that too. For you, what have been your experiences here when it comes to being in Gaelic football environments? Have you found them to be positive places, free of shaming or stigma that you can feel comfortable talking about your mental health if you want to? Or have there been problems along the way?
1: Well, I definitely think sport cultivates a kind of a far greater positive character traits in young men than toxicity. There's a high profile example of a Gaelic hurler from back home uh, who came out of the closet uh, and his name is Donalogue Cusack and he wrote a very interesting book on his life and the challenges that came out there. Randomly enough there was a a player on my home team who came out of the closet too later in life and there was no issues and there happened to be a a player on our university team who also came out of the closet during our, our season and there was no issues. There might be a bit of a cultural thing With soccer compared to rugby or Gaelic football, rugby and Gaelic football don't seem to have as many problems or different problems, perhaps, to soccer. In rugby, they have that kind of incredible respect for the ref and kind of they're well behaved in terms of their manners on the field. And in Gaelic football, all our fans are mixed in on top of each other and there's no fights hardly ever at the games. And that would be unheard of if you mixed Millwall fans and West Ham fans in together. That would be a recipe for disaster. So I don't know, maybe there's a cultural thing going on. I generally tend to find that being on a team is positive for one's mental health rather than toxic.
0: You wrote about the experiences we've just discussed in an article in ARIO magazine called How Sport Can Reduce Racism and Irish Case Study, which I'd re- implore everyone to go and read after this pod and I'll put it in the show notes. You mentioned that researchers at Stanford University found an 18.9% drop in anti-Muslim hate crimes on Merseyside in the period since Mohamed Salah signed for Liverpool in June 2017. Now whilst that is a great positive, playing devil's advocate here a little bit, if, if you like, and being a bit cynical maybe... Do you think it's sad that it took a Muslim player to play for their club to educate a few fans about tolerance of others? And also, is there a danger that if he doesn't play well at any point, that could change for the worse?
1: Mm, I would tend to frame it as the positive rather than the negative that it took so long or whatever on that side. I don't think there's as much of a danger of them turning on Salah. I don't think it's a fake affinity. The statistics about Mohamed Salah and how he reduced anti-Muslim bigotry in Liverpool is incredible, you know, and that's formidable. I don't think that's um, hollow. I don't think that's fake. I think it's real because basically my article gets in, I don't want to get too science heavy, but basically my article discusses that there is scientific experimental evidence that shows that human minds treat race as proxy for other Alliance memberships. So it it implies that racial categorization does not reflect our attention to physical features, but rather to social relationships. So basically if you give someone another tribe, it erases the automaticity to which we attend to race. So the evolutionary psychology behind that is that basically it's unlikely that our ancestral populations ever traveled far enough To have encountered other members of races with any regularity. So we often use race as kind of that proxy for other group memberships. So if you give people an alternative group membership, such as your football team, like Salah, it kind of overrides that. And I think that's a great example of maybe how we should approach it. There's another example I can point to, which is a speech by Barack Obama, in which he described Muslim Americans as our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers and our sports heroes. And yes, our men and women in uniform who are willing to die in defense of our country. That speech meant for the first time in more than a year, the most frequently Googled word after Muslim was not terrorists, not extremists, not refugees, but athletes, soldiers, and the word athletes remained at a top spot for a full day afterwards. So it basically, it's a different approach. When you lecture people about being racist, and you know their anger and fury will kind of grow. But if you kind of give them an alternative vision, you stoke their curiosity, provide new information about the groups that they maybe think they're against, you recreate a new image in their mind. It turns their tensions in a more positive way. You often see this even with a racist if you ever encounter them. They often will have maybe a black friend or a a Muslim friend that they'll be racist about others towards. And they'll say, oh, but I don't really mean you. That kind of shows they're looking at that person in a totally different lens. So provide new group memberships, build new tribes. And I think sport can be a great way to kind of do that rather than focusing on the different identities.
0: That's a really interesting perspective, Will, and I'm glad you shared that. I completely agree with you. And I think on the last point on what you said about them being racist towards a certain group, but not their friend, you only have to look at football fans when they racially abuse players, but they have black players on their own team. So it's exactly that. Just as a final question, Will, and this has been a great little bite-sized pod. Throughout these experience, how do you think Gaelic football has shaped you into the person speaking to me right now? And what has it taught you about yourself?
1: Gaelic games is one of the aspects about being Irish that I'm very proud of. It's a huge part of our mythology and folklore for thousands of years. Everyone is welcome to play and join in in Irish culture. Don't listen to any nonsense about cultural appropriation or anything like that. Ireland has become an incredibly progressive country rather than the backward Catholic backwater that many believe us to be. If you consider that Ireland was the first country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage by vote of the public opinion, and that during the repealed eighth, campaign. We overwhelmingly voted to provide access to safe abortions for women. Ireland is a very kind of young progressive country. I think the world still has a lot to learn from the Irish model of integrating into society wherever we go while still retaining the richness of our culture and welcoming others who wish to embrace it. You know, this idea of cultural appropriation, I'm very against it. I, I don't know what you think yourself, Fred, but I, I hate the phrase cultural appropriation. The history of all cultures is a history of cultural borrowing. And we love to share our native games, our dance, our folklore, our customs, wherever we go. There are six million Irish people and native Irish people in Ireland with an estimated 50 to 80 million in the worldwide Irish diaspora so we you know we travel all around the place even barack obama has claimed he has irish heritage barack obama he pointed to when he came to visit and ireland has the highest proportion of native born citizens living abroad one in six irish people are born abroad are uh, born at home but live abroad we're a small little country in a big ocean but from here we've kind of touched the world and particularly around gaelic games and sport in particular last year the GAA, so the Gaelic Athletic Association, launched a manifesto, which summed up the, by the slogan, the GAA, where we all belong. And they made a documentary called New Gales, which tells the stories of four GAA players who were born in other countries, but embraced Gaelic games when they arrived in Ireland and in turn were welcomed by the Gaelic games community, which helped make their new country of residence feel like home. And one of the players is quoted as saying, I have Kurdish blood with an Irish heart you're never going to get rid of racism in this world you're going to get it in every country in the world you're going to get that small minority and that the problem is we can't let the small minority ruin it for everyone else so yeah take no notice of the cultural appropriation stuff everybody is welcome to embrace irish culture
0: Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this bite-sized episode of Mind on the Game. I want to say a big thanks to friend of the pod, Will Costello, for coming back to tell you all about his love affair with Gaelic football. And I hope you've learned a few things along the way. As always, thanks to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it or give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or support our Patreon at www.patreon.com venthelpuk. Please, please, please do if you can. Every penny really does count. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mind on the Game, and remember, it's always okay to vent.